Hello everyone, my name is Vanessa Menendez-Covello and this is the Fresh Needle podcast where I interview fresh graduates and acupuncture students from all over the world and we discuss their experiences as students or running their own clinics, particularly in these very weird times of COVID-19. I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity that is opening up for new graduates who are looking to build their acupuncture practice. Nava Karman is a leading acupuncturist and herbalist specializing in fertility, gynecology, and the immune system. She has run the fertility support company for over 20 years. Nava is launching a new mastermind group exclusively for new graduates. This mastermind group will meet every two weeks to provide mentoring, guidance, and inspiration, and will focus on clinical skills and the practicalities of building a business. This will be a close-knit group of practitioners who will work together for a year to develop the skills and habits required to be clinically effective and financially successful. I recently did a session with Nava, and what I like the most about it is how safe I felt about discussing my fears and worries. I came out of it with a list of very practical, achievable steps to implement change. There are only six places in the group, so you need to apply quickly. Go to www.fertilitysupport.expert forward slash graduate. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Sally Connolly. Sally graduated two years ago from the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine in Reading, and she has a practice in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire, which is currently closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, as all the other acupuncture clinics in the country are. She has also been practicing acupuncture in Gujarat, India, with World Medicine. Welcome, Sally. Hi, lovely to meet you. Yes, so nice. Um, so nice speaking to someone who's in the same boat as I am of, you know, being like, you know, clinics are closed. We're all sitting here thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Yes. Yeah, it's challenging, especially, I think, as, as we were saying, being very new to practice. Um, you know, you feel like you've just found your feet and built up, you know, a, a client base. And then all of a sudden the rug's been pulled. So, yeah, it's been a challenging couple of months, I think. Yes, I think everyone and everyone's got COVID-19 fatigue now, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's very difficult because, you know, there's some people who are very understandably fearful of um, of COVID-19 and, and, and people who, you know, aren't, are having to shield because they've got underlying health conditions. But then there are people, you know, particularly younger people who are just at the beginning of of life, you know, there's an understandable frustration they want to get back out there and start living again. So it's 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 a bit divisive, I think, which adds another element. Yes, I have started noticing a bit a bit of that, a bit of, you know, mm. particularly I think the A-level students feel yeah. like they've been robbed of their, you know, oh, the summer yeah. before your gap year or before Absolutely. going to university. Yeah. And also not knowing what's going to happen with the universities, because I think a lot of them are, are going to do the whole of the next ac- academic year online, which is not what you sign up for, is it, As a particularly as an 18-year-old? No, definitely not. So you graduated from... Um, how do you say it? Sikkim? Is that how people pronounce yeah, it? The College of Integrated Chinese Medicine. So we just uh, affectionately refer to it as Kikkim because it's much easier. <laughs> yes. So that you studied both uh, traditional Chinese medicine and five elements acupuncture. So can you tell us a bit about your experience? Um, because, you know, I always ask people because I'm always really interested in other colleges. I went to the City College of Acupuncture, but I looked at Reading. I looked at many other colleges. And I always think, what would that 
what would it have been like somewhere else? And I heard that Sikkim is really, really um, very academic. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say academic per se. I think if you are a very academic person, then, then that's certainly catered for. I would say the course is very rigorous um, and it's very demanding on your time and energy. Um, and, and actually, I think they, all acupuncture courses are, um, you know, because it's a discipline that t- really takes a lot of different ways of learning. Um, I, I, and I think having TCM and five element together adds another another dimension and a different type of challenge. Um, and certainly it's not for the faint hearted, but I'm not an academic person and academia has never has never driven me. That's not what inspired me to, to study acupuncture. I'm much more interested in people. And actually, I think acupuncture as a subject, that's that's one of the, the many beautiful things about it is that if you if you are into research and to, to the much more kind of scientific um, basis of acupuncture, then there's a career there for you in, in that that sort of side of things. But if if you're not, then that's OK, too. And if you're much more interested in in people, um, then then that's also a sort of pathway for you too and I don't think there's I there's there's very few subjects that that are similar in that way um and certainly ones that you can build your own business on and COVID dependent of course um and there's so many options and so you know even if you wanted to to specialize in 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 different things fertility mental health or just to be a kind of much more general practitioner um but yeah but kick them I, I, you know, I'm, I'm biased. I, I, I loved my time there. I mean, sometimes I just wanted to, <laughs> to cry and leave. Um, but you know, it's, it's an amazing college, and I, and I'm, I feel really grateful to have had those two elements, the five elements and the TCM, sort of interwoven. Um, yeah, it, but it is, it's, it's, it is a hard course. But you know, I think it, the same for you, for you guys at City College. It's, it's not it's not an easy undertaking um but it's worth it absolutely no it was easy it was not <laughs> <laughs> and i think i think everyone at some point everyone um gets like an absolute meltdown halfway through yeah. where they think because i have always been really academic i was so i was mm. really daunted at the beginning of the course by um, the amount of work to be done, that's never been something that scares me. I'm quite happy to put the hour mm-hmm. in. I know how to organize my study time, even though having said that, because I hadn't been at university for 20 years, mm-hmm. I the memorization part, like you have to learn the points and that's it. You have to learn them, mm-hmm. you have to memorize that and the functions of the points. I kept trying to reverse engineer the functions like okay maybe you know if I group them if I by location by activity I don't know but at the end of the day there's all this thing that you just have to get into your head and I remember sitting on a bus with um, my husband coming back from the British Library and saying I don't think I can do this <laughs> I know I, I yeah I understand your pain I think and also the thing about studying acupuncture is there's so many different things that you need to learn and each thing takes a very different skill so you've got you know I, I'd never done any body work before I started this degree so I hadn't you know even just palpation skills you know I had to learn from from sort of ground zero um, so you've got the very physical hands-on skill 
Um, and then you've got memory. You know, I think having a good memory really serves you well because it is a lot of it is you just have to sit down and and learn those points. And, you know, and you're tired already. So your memory's already chopped to bits. Um, and then also understanding people, which, you know, isn't necessarily an easy thing to teach because everybody has a different way of relating to people and a different understanding. So you have all of these things coming in and then you've got assignments to do on top of it, which you have to write in you know, very specific way. I hadn't done a degree before. So I had to uh, adjust my thinking to to fit into what can be quite a narrow, uh, a narrow box in terms of how you write these things. Um, yeah, so it, it kind of comes at you from all angles. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's exhausting. <laughs> Oh my God, the essays. I remember the essays. Um, that was one of my meltdowns because, so I studied um, my first um, couple of degrees in computer science in Spain, where the teaching is very much kind of like you memorize things and you go to the exam and yeah. you just vomit it all out. But then yeah. I did a master's degree at Cambridge, where it's exactly the opposite way. You are really supposed to challenge things. You're supposed to have your own opinion. They don't want you yeah. to just repeat the stuff you've learned. You have to go beyond So yeah. one of the first Western medicine essays I wrote for the CCA, uh, I got told off because we had very clear instructions on what what the essay was supposed to be about. But I found a really interesting line of inquiry when I was doing my research and I just ran with it. <laughs> and then she was like, well, this is very good, but that's not what I asked for. Yeah, it's an it's an adjustment. And also, I think Chinese medicine is, you know, there's contradictions in there. You know, there's there's some very hard and fast rules, but there always seems to be an exception to those things, which makes it even uh, it adds another challenge to, to, to learning because you can have two teachers who are both practitioners who approach things in very different ways. And both of those ways are valid. Um, but it's just that, you know, which one do you take and how do you how do you sort of implant that into an essay or into an exam? Like who are you, whose course do you take? Whose pathway do you follow? It's, it, yeah, it's, um, it's a challenging subject to learn. And I think it would be a challenging subject to teach as well in that way. Yes, yes. And in my course, I think it became a kind of like running joke, um, mature chances, you know, <laughs> because there was always someone saying, well, but you know, mature chances. <laughs> yes and then you know the, the lectures bless them they were always saying well yes Mathieu just says but you know we don't always agree with Mathieu on absolutely abs everything on a hundred percent exactly and I think when you graduate and you do dip your toe into the water of your own clinic you start to you do start to develop your own approaches um and that's the exciting thing about it you can take what you've learned and start to sort of play around and see what responses you get from your own patients but when you're studying it's very difficult to imagine that um and also you, you kind of have to stick within the confines of what you're being given um yeah do you still remember your first day in clinic Oh God! Well, yeah. What in my own practice or as a student in student, student clinic? Student clinic. Oh, God, you know, it's going into student clinic was almost like going back to to square one. I felt like I'd forgotten everything. I the power of speech seemed to abandon me. It was yeah. It it, it was well. I don't want to say it was awful because it wasn't awful, but suddenly I felt like I knew nothing and the rug had been pulled again and I was just kind of you know flapping around trying to find my way but I, I think what I 
what and actually the same thing happened again when I uh, went into my own practice I you know I started taking on my own patients and again I was like oh god do I know what I'm doing you know I've I've forgotten everything what do I do but you know I think you overcome those moments and they're an important part of learning to sort of go back to the beginning and feel like you don't know anything Um, and then you can build up again and it you know it's part of the process but yeah gosh I'm glad it's I'm glad it's I've done it. <laughs> yes, I remember um, exactly feeling like that. And um, we built into the clinic gradually. So, you know, the first couple of weeks, we were only treating one patient in a full mm. day of clinic. Then we doing yeah. we were doing a lot of observations. So it's not like we were doing two hours of work and then sitting there. But yeah. I remember at the time thinking, well, why are we doing only one patient? Like, I'm ready to do more. <laughs> And then God, they I arrived and I realized that, no, I wasn't ready to do more than one patient. That <laughs> no. no, it's funny. And now I think, you know, I sort of, you know, when, when I was open, I was sort of um, having seven or eight patients in a day. And when I look back to when I started, that didn't seem possible. <laughs> didn't seem like I could, you know, how do you do that? But you do learn and you do, things do become easier Um and it's always important to add in new challenges, I think, and to to always remember that there's something new to learn. Um, but yeah, gosh, that first day, and 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 it was exhausting as well. Just having one patient would just take up so much energy. <laughs> Absolutely, it's really interesting because I really I, I just remember the distinct feeling of thinking I was absolutely really well prepared, and then realizing that not really, no, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my first patient was actually a friend of mine and he was a boxer and you know the problem with boxers is because they've been knocked around for years yeah. um, then you just don't get any dirty at all like you know you put the needle no. in he doesn't feel anything and you're like should I use a nail instead of a needle <laughs> <laughs> yeah you set yourself a unique challenge there I think <laughs> think I did and I, I just distinctly remember him being super nice and super patient but kind of sitting there thinking is this it really <laughs> bless him how how does your college um source the patients did you have to go out and find patients or did they provide them they they source them for us so they have um they put out letters to the local community and i think we're encouraged to if we do know i mean a lot of people um travel to study there so it doesn't always apply but we are encouraged to invite uh people who can come to sessions to to join the waiting list to be treated um but they've all they do seem to have a steady a steady supply of patients um and mostly local local residents because obviously you know that they're getting treatment at a slightly well you know a reduced rate albeit they have to sometimes be there for quite a long time particularly when people when students are are new to clinic um yeah so which was quite nice because you know I, I think having somebody that you don't know that you've never met before and you can't anticipate what issues they might present you with um I I think that's a a good way of learning um and then when I don't know how it works at the where you trained but for the last uh three months of being in clinic we then have to we're in our p I think it's called pqp period which I actually can't remember what that stands for now Oh, permission to practice, something like that. Um, but anyway, so we were given permission to practice outside of college as a student practitioner. Um, so, and this was this is one of the really good things about Kickham in hindsight is that you you had those three months to um, set up 
from home or from a, a chiropractor or wherever you had decided to treat um, as a student practitioner. So you could take your notes into college and, and have everything checked over to make sure that you, you know, you're on the right sort of path with them in terms of your treatment plans. But having that experience of taking on patients on your own, in your own space, while still being at college. Um, so you, you do start to do that as well. And to begin with, certainly I did, and I know a few of my colleagues who I was training with did, you take on people you know. So I started treating my parents and, and using them as case studies. Um, so uh, which was, you know, you uh, you kind of did have to do that because sourcing patients and having the confidence to kind of advertise yourself and put yourself out there is, I think that takes a bit more time. Um but when when it is someone you know, I think you know you can be a bit more relaxed relaxed about your approach. Um, you just feel more comfortable, don't you, when it's someone you know? But um, yeah, having those last three months at Kickham, it, it kind of guided me into my practice because I'd already started, um, you know, doing a bit of marketing, like business cards and that kind of thing, and a bit of word of mouth. So by the by the time I did graduate, I was in a position where I already had four or five patients a week from that time period Mm. Um, and some people aren't necessarily ready for that I think everybody's in a unique position you know some people have children and they want to have a break after studying you know but if you do want to hit the ground running um, then that option's there for you so that was that was an invaluable part of the course particularly for me because I was really keen to start working and earning some money you know ultimately we, we need to we need to pay the bills don't we Oh, yes, we do. But that's really interesting. Um, No, the view at CCA was um, from the very beginning, they wanted us to to start marketing ourselves and they really Mm. wanted us to work on finding patients. So what they did Mm. is they had a list of the regulars. So they have people that have been going there for years because they have many um, you know, kind of like lifelong complex diseases that they get help with, you know, throughout every, every academic year they're there um, so you can treat a patient up to I think it was eight weeks and then you pass it pass the patient not it is not a, it's not a thing that people <laughs> you pass the patient on to someone else um, I was very keen as, as you were um, so I did a lot of um, marketing of I, I really tried to get a lot of friends and people local to my area because I live in North London and it was easy to get to uh, to the clinic from there. What I found, which was really interesting because I like to do statistics. So I like to look back and think, okay, how did this all work? So what I found is that by doing this, I was getting a lot of patients that were only coming in for two, three, maybe four sessions because my world is a world of um, yoga teachers and a world of fitness people and quite often what happens is you know they get a little bit of back pain and you treat them three times and off they go happy again (laughs) while the patients supplied by the college uh, you know you get to treat them for eight weeks and and then you know they go on to someone else but you've not like fixed them so that was a, a really interesting thing for me to notice yeah and and interestingly I think starting out when I set my practice up um 
And it's, I think it's different for chronic conditions. And certainly it was the same at Kickham. We had patients in student clinic who have been coming for 15 years and would just keep going. And it was part of their healthcare regime. It was just had become part of their lifestyle. And certainly I think when people are used to acupuncture and know that it can be used in that way, they're much more committed. And certainly when they it's, it's affordable. Um, and when I started outside of Kickham you know I'd have the same thing people coming for two or three sessions and then off they go and certainly with back pain you know sometimes two or three sessions does it and you know sometimes one session sorts them out and off they go but then I got to the point that I when I built up a bit more confidence I felt able to say to people um please consider having six treatments six weekly treatments so six weeks worth of treatment essentially when you start out because acupuncture is an accumulative medicine and I felt that almost as much as you know I think money charging money sometimes can be an issue a stumbling block for new students and certainly I was the exchange of money in the early days um, I was like oh yeah can you pay me now it's like okay you know I'm actually going to earn money for this because I love it and I would happily do it and have done it for free you know this is I enjoy helping people um, but I actually came to the conclusion that by saying to somebody with what could be viewed as an ongoing problem that I would see them once and see how they go, I, it was not doing, it was doing a disservice to acupuncture, I think. So I, I kind of built built up the confidence to say, please consider six weeks worth of treatment, because then you'll really be able to understand how acupuncture can help you. Um, and at that point, when they get to the six week period I would say to them okay so go away for a couple of weeks see how you feel if you feel that you need you can't go more than a week without having the treatment um, then drop me a line and we'll get you back in if you can leave it a couple of weeks then come back in and then you know I like to get people to the fit to the point where they can just pop back in when they feel they're ready for a top up and people do know and and I think empowering people to know when they are ready for their next treatment has been a, a really important part of my practice so far um and I've it's it's also helped me to build up some loyal patients who who know that they don't have to commit to lots of sessions but they also know that if they want the best from acupuncture it has to be woven in to lifestyle change and you know and part of um healthcare and and I think acupuncture is a modality a treatment modality is it, it that's how it should be viewed to me um in, in my mind um and certainly with the patients that I have been lucky enough to treat that's that's what I see in my own clinic um yeah yeah, and there's so much power in getting regular treatment. Like quite often um, when I tell people that I have been receiving acupuncture, you know, every two, three weeks for probably 10 years now, and they always ask, oh, were you that sick? And it's like, no, actually, I never got that sick because I was receiving that acupuncture regularly. And I always find it really interesting how unless they're really desperate, people are not so willing to invest that money while sometimes they are willing to invest the money on, um, you know, a manicure or if they're main, uh, I don't know, going to the football or something like that, or, you know, men have manicures as well. But what I mean is that there's this whole kind of so-called wellness trend, which is about self-care, but it seems self-care in a slightly... <sighs> 
I hate to say shallow, but a little bit superficial way because, yes, I love getting my nails done. I really do. And the only reason why I gave up on dyeing my hair is because um, I was starting to get an allergy <laughs> from it. But it it is not the it never goes as deep as actually getting an acupuncture treatment. It just does not. No. And I think that, that there's the extrinsic self-care and then there's the intrinsic self-care. And I think, you know, we do live in quite an extrinsic world. You know, we get a lot of gratification from outside validation. I think you only have to look at Instagram to see that in practice. And, you know, we, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look your best. I mean, I'm really looking forward to getting my roots done because everyone's going to know I'm not a natural blonde at some point. Um, you know, and those things are important. But those, I, I think intri- the intrinsic healing and the intrinsic well-being needs to come before all of all of those external things. Because that's when I think if you can really feel your best and understand your own worth without those, um, you know, decorative things, then I think that 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 that's what really life should be about, you know, understanding that you don't need those other things to feel your best. And actually, they're just a bonus. And I don't want to, you know, undervalue those things, because we all like to feel good. And we and, and presentation is is a part of that in every culture. Um, but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be prioritized over and above well-being on a physical and mental health level. And and I think, you know, a lot of the new patients that I take on who've never experienced acupuncture before don't necessarily understand in how many different ways acupuncture can help you. And that, you know, you might have a very physical pain that's that's rooted in a, a very emotionally um, difficult time in your life. And I, th- I think the more people understand that, then the, the, the more acupuncture will flourish as, as a treatment um, and as an industry as a whole. And I th- certainly at the moment, I think with, with COVID-19, I think you know, everybody's very um, rightly invested on a cure and on a vaccine, which is great. And those things are life-saving and we need those things. But I think as a society and particularly in the West, we need to understand that to, to we need to prepare our bodies for um, time periods like this. You know, I think we have a responsibility to ourselves and others to keep ourselves as well as we possibly can so that when we enter situations like this, our bodies are as prepared as they can be. And I, this is not always easy. You know, I struggle with, you know, sometimes I my weight fluctuates. I, I You know, I enjoy eating. All of those things are really difficult. Um, but we, I, I think our attitude towards medicine needs to shift more to a lifestyle medicine. You know, before we look at what drugs we can give, we need to look at what your diet's like and what your sleep is like and what your lifestyle's like. And, you know, you're taking care of yourself because often so many things can be sorted before we get to the point of medication. And if we have both of those options, then we're in a much better position um, than, than without addressing those other things first if we just head towards pharmaceuticals first of all um sorry I went off on a slightly different thread there but no no I I love that train of thought because for me it's that difference between so health um if you talk to a western medical doctor he or she are going to define health as a lack of disease but Mm. there's a massive difference between health and optimal health 
and I noticed it enormously. Um, I used to work in a really stressful environment and I was always so-called healthy, but not really. And then like literally three months after quitting that and, and taking time off and then decided to do acupuncture, everyone was commenting on how well I looked. And it's not because I wasn't do, because I was doing more facials or anything like that. It was just that I wasn't under so much pressure and I was cooking a lot because I was at home. So I didn't have to get my lunch from, you know, Pret or the sandwich shop or I didn't drink my coffee on the go. I had time in the mornings to, you know, wake up and, and have my day. And I think that's really where acupuncture really helps enormously so i wonder if all these people that um, have either suffered with covid or been a bit you know scared or depressed or suffering through this lockdown afterwards are going to be like well actually we just realized that health is is a huge thing that really we need to start focusing on more yeah i think so i hope so and and certainly i think where people get their joy and happiness from may change and i and and i think if you begin to live a slightly more simple life um then that comes with its own health benefits as well and i think you know there's lots of people who have very long commutes um who often don't get home till 10 o'clock at night and that's been taken away and i think those things alone will make people feel much better and i think when you understand how good you can feel and certainly i think with with the treatment like acupuncture it, it you know you understand how how good you can feel both physically and mentally i think it makes you feel like you're the very best best version of yourself i think when people have an experience like that they're, they're reluctant to go back to old patterns um, in many cases and, and i hope that the one of the things that will come from this is people will see that there is there are other ways of working and I, you know, working from home, I think a lot of big, I think it's Twitter actually have, have now said that they want to have the majority of their workforce working from home as standard. And I think, you know, if it, if it gives people a much more um, flexible way of living and with, there's less cars on the road and there's less pollution, um, it opens up a whole new way of living. And, you know, if you can take time for yourself to to cook from scratch or to even just get out into the sunshine, those things make a really big difference to, to people's lives. Um, and obviously acupuncture. I mean, I, you know, I can't, I'm really missing my acupuncturist. <laughs> I'm treating myself a little bit. I don't, I just want somebody else to to do it for me. <laughs> It's not the same, is it? This is the like the permanent no. conversation I have going on with people like, does acupuncture on yourself work or does it not? And I have, um, you know, I have a mentor acupuncturist who treats herself a lot. And she's like, yeah, of course, I treat myself every day and it's great. For me, I don't know if just like my cheese slightly deficient in itself. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like recycling poor cheese. But it, for me, it's not the same, anywhere near the same doing it on myself as having someone else do it. I agree. I, you know, if I'm absolutely desperate, or if you know my my back's twinging and you know I've got a bit of back pain, then then those things I I, I do end up treating myself for, and it it does work in that way. But I think it, there's something else that somebody else gives you during treatment that, um, and certainly like you say, the cycle of chi. I think if you're interrupting your own chi with your own chi. It, it, it it's it's not doesn't feel as good and I think we're concentrating on what you're feeling on the you know when we're treating patients we're feeling what's on the needle then we're waiting for their reaction and they're waiting to feel the chi and when you've got both of those things going on 
it it doesn't work as well and you can't you can't be in those two places at one time um so yeah I I think having and also I think you know we, we work in a caring profession and I think sometimes it's easy to forget that we need that care too so having somebody else hold that space for you and take care of you and look after you and also see things in a way that you're not necessarily able to see for yourself is really important. So I'm, I'm absolutely desperate for my treatment. <laughs> yes, me too. And um, so up until now, we've talked about getting acupuncture from the point of view of, um, you know, relative privilege of, of we're in the West, we have money for it, but you have had the experience of helping out communities that don't have such easy access to, to healthcare in India. So would you like to tell us more about that? Yeah, certainly. So I went to um, India, first of all, in 2019, as a new graduate with World Medicine, because they'd put um, some notices up around various colleges, I'm sure yours as well, um, asking if there's any new graduates who'd like to go and do this uh, acupuncture camp that they'd done, I think, multiple years, I, I think they're on about maybe 10 years now, I don't know. But uh, certainly, it's well established. So I thought, oh, you know, I mean, I hadn't finished my degree yet. I just thought, oh, yeah, I'll apply, you know. So I went to my interview and I was very lucky to be offered the opportunity to go. So I, it, by the time I actually went on my first trip, I think I'd been in practice in my own clinic for about four or five months. So very tentative. And, I, you know, I was probably seeing about maybe 10 patients a week if that between seven and ten I was very happy with that but it, it wasn't a, a large influx of people um, and so obviously that the setting in India was um, multi-bed setting so that we could treat as many people as we possibly could um, it was in a hospital I mean certainly not a hospital uh, by the standards that we would know them in this country and in, in the west in general um, it, 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 it didn't have the same level of facilities at all um so we said we had a, me- a men's clinic and a women's clinic and in the first year I was in the women's clinic and you know I was guided in gently so I didn't have to to hit the floor running with with it but I was also really keen to get started but it, it you know it's, it was an overwhelming amount of people we, we the, the first day we came in in the queue people were just sitting on the floor of this ward all snaking around the, ho- the whole corner and you know people from some really really challenging who had really challenging lives you know people who work it's, it's a lot of rural farmland surrounding the hospital and this hospital had been built by um, one of the spiritual leaders, a Bapu. Um, I'd, I'd never been to India before either, so not Ooh. only was this, yeah, so it was it was everything all at once, um, which you can imagine was quite a shock on the system. Um, so the hospital had been built by this by the, the local Bapu, and he'd built a school, um, and he'd developed a relationship with the woman who who started this some years ago, and she had treated him for migraines. And he was so overwhelmed by how well it worked, he then wanted to roll it out so that the people within his jurisdiction, the, the you know, people who live in very challenging, um, you know, poverty really, um, could have access to this healthcare. So that's how it started. So, um, yeah, I mean, what can I say that uh, I've, the, the condition that the people that we treated were in was, was very difficult to see sometimes. Um, and working in the women's clinic in my first year, um, you know, I th- sometimes women are sort of slightly lower on the pecking order. Um, so 
the access to even just sanitary hygiene, being having access to to contraception, that kind of thing was it just wasn't there for them. Um, yeah, sometimes it was quite distressing, but I think the thing that you had to remember in those really challenging moments was that you could actually offer something there and then to help them. And they absolutely loved it. And also I think particularly for the women, I think having some time to be pampered and looked after and touched um, and paid attention to was, was as important as that treatment. Um, And I, you know, I think the, the amazing thing about it was that a lot of the people had no access to any, any drugs or pharmaceuticals. They were just, you know, cracking on with life, really. Um, and a lot of the women working physically hard on on the farms over there. Um, so you, you were really able to see what acupuncture could do in very challenging circumstances and how powerful that can be with very minimal intervention, sometimes very few needles. Um, and it could bring about such change and enable people to feel better physically and mentally it was such a gift to be able to give it was really such a privilege to be able to to help people and also you know I saw I I saw one particular woman in my first year who was a real standout case and when I and bearing in mind I was a quite a new graduate I mean I was like oh god you know suddenly again I felt like I didn't know anything Um, and I had this this woman who had had chicken gunya which is a mosquito-borne disease. I'd never heard of it, but it just brings out a massive fever. And it just, what it seems to do is it just, is a lot of toxic heat and it just dries dries up all the yin. So they were just so yin deficient, but all of their joints would become swollen, but everything else was really um, just skinny and just no muscle tone left. Um, and it would just leave them with terrible aches and, and all sorts of things. And this one particular woman had um, had had chicken gunya, and it meant that she wasn't able to she wasn't able to dress herself in the morning, and she certainly wasn't able to go out and work on the fields to help her husband as she was doing. And she just she actually said to me, which was really upsetting. She said, "I just want to shoot myself. I just want to die. I can't take this anymore," because she was in so much pain and there wasn't anything to be done for her. And she was very poor, so her diet was very limited. Um, and I took her pulse, and it was about I would I think it was about forty five beats per minute, and it was so irregular that I actually was I'd never felt anything like it before, and I thought. I, this woman is on this she's not going to survive like this just she just doesn't feel like there's any life in her at all so obviously I just um, I, I didn't really know what how to start but I thought well anything I do is going to help her um so I, I can't remember what I did first of all I think maybe I just opened the Chong Ma I don't maybe not I think I did heart seven I don't know I kept it really simple and I I I hadn't had very much clinical experience at that point. So I just kept it simple and did what I knew. And it's just a very nourishing treatment. I just tonified um, and off she went. And I um, asked her to come back, not the next day, but the day after, because they have to come for at least three sessions and they're allowed up to six over the time period that we were there. And she came back in and it was like a different woman. She was. She said she'd been able to dress herself that morning um, rather than getting her daughter to help. Um, she just had a bit more sparkle in her eyes and her pulse was regular. It was, I think wow. it's gone up to 
67 beats per minute and it was just regular and that was after one treatment and that just absolutely blew my mind so she continued to come um she was so lovely she continued to come and and by the end of her six treatments she was able to go back out working into the fields which I mean an ideal world she'd be able to rest and really recover but it's not an ideal world unfortunately so she had to go back out and help her husband um but she felt better and she looked better and she she was better um, you know, to a certain extent. So I was able to be able to help somebody to recover in that way and to regain some independence um, and to be able to work for a living. You know, that's like such a powerful thing to be able to help with, just with a, a few needles, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I have a friend who um, worked in um, Mysore, India for many years, helping Odanadi, which is a really, really lovely organization. They actually help um, people that have been abused, basically um, sexually exploited. Um, so what he always said is that first you have to develop a lot of sensitivity because obviously these are people that have been traumatized and then they don't always speak the language. So you have to really rely on, on tongue pulse and very few points, because obviously you are not going to do points that might traumatize them further because they are in areas that might feel a bit delicate. And I always wonder, was it then a culture shock to come back? And did Because I, I've spent time in India and I've seen what, what is there and sometimes people live in really challenging circumstances. And then I come back to my really comfortable life in London. And I think, oh my God, you know, I want to slap myself because I think I stress about nothing. Like I'm not hungry, you know, I'm, I'm relatively healthy. I don't have to work in a field in extreme heat for 12 hours just to, to feed my children, not even myself. So did you have a bit of culture shock in that sense? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. I think, and uh, going there and and seeing how other people live, firstly, and then also coming back to you know my own home and a comfy bed and um, a low impact job, and and also working with people who had a different set of problems coming from a very different place, you know, be that work stress or you know, but actually when you've got all your essentials met. Um, that's a, pri- a place of privilege but that doesn't mean that those people's problems weren't just as valid you know we live in a different set of circumstances and I think I had to really wrap my head around that and it was it's quite a challenging thing to do um, and and also you know the people in India are so so generous and so welcoming and, and that the lady that I spoke about wanted me to come to her house for a coconut you know, because that was all she could offer me. And she brought her daughter in to meet me. And, and you know, w- what happens is towards the end of the treatment, when they start to feel better, they start to say things like, you're a god, you're a god. And that is very, very upsetting because th- it's not about that. You're just there as somebody who wants to to pass on what you're able to do, you know, and, and to when you're in a position of privilege you have a responsibility to help others so when there was a kind you know I think that very deferential um behavior was very difficult to to come to terms with because they were deserving of the treatment and you know it's I didn't feel that I was doing anything special if anything it was 
the the privilege to be there was mine to to be able to experience how other people live and to be able to use what I've learned to help people that I'm lucky to be able to do that um yeah and I, I, coming back I think it, it did take me a while to adjust and to get back into into clinic into my own practice and living my own life um and certainly I, it's something I've been thinking about you know, when you look at the protests in, in America at the moment and white privilege and and I am wary of that kind of white saviour mentality of going to a country that's that, that doesn't necessarily have all the riches that we have in the West and and offering help when actually is that the right thing to be doing? So that was a challenge for me as well because I didn't want to be walking in there and being like, oh, you know, look what I've got to offer these poor people because that's not how I felt about it. You know, and one of the lovely things, particularly about working in the women's clinic is that we had a translator. So we were able to actually, you know, get quite a lot of chat and, you know, all of the issues that women have are the same there, but they just don't have the same resources that we have, you know, bit painful periods and talking about periods and, and having children and men and all, you know, relationships with other people and, you know, romantic relationships, all of those things were common ground. Um, It's just that in, in the West and more developed countries, we, we have much more comfort to help us through those things. Um, but having those common factors was lovely just to be able to chat to them, you know, just like, you know, talk, chatting to your girlfriends, you know, we, we had so, there was, there was humor there as well, you know, and, and an understanding because I think even when, you know, obviously with the translators, it, it, um, it's a more convoluted way of, of communicating, but even just, you know, there's eye contact and, you know, they were so funny and so lovely and just, and they just wanted to like touch you because they haven't seen someone with blonde hair before, you know, all those sorts of things. And you could just have a real laugh. And so that helped to, um, to, to make it all a bit easier in terms of seeing people who, who don't have what we have. But also I think when, when all of those things are taken away, you're much more connected to life in a, in a way. I think they're much more connected to their own survival. You know, I think if they had a power cut or if they didn't have the internet, as many of them don't, or if they didn't have a mobile phone or if they didn't have access to running water, they're much more equipped to understand how to deal with that. And I think, you know, even just seeing what's happened with a pandemic is that actually life is probably, I mean, I know they're on lockdown in India too, but they're they're much more able to live on the bare minimum and we don't have that skill. And I think that that takes us away from um, really being connected to life and death. You know, I, I think we view death as something that is, absolutely shouldn't happen and we do everything we can to avoid it but ultimately it's a part of life and I think if you're living in much more challenging conditions death is much more of a part of that so you in a way I think you appreciate life more and I think that's the one thing that I I feel is lacking for me here at home is that we, we don't have that value placed on life in the same way because we assume that there'll always be something to keep us alive and we don't necessarily have the resources to do it for ourselves that makes sense it makes a lot of sense and i i remember reading years ago that um it it was a study that tried to correlate wealth with happiness and the conclusion was that um and it didn't matter which city you were on the amount of money would vary they could adjust for the city but the conclusion was that 
as long as you have a shelter, you know, as long as you've got a roof over your head and you've got health and you've got food and, you know, maybe just something a little bit extra to give yourself something, some fun to play with. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a trip abroad every year. If you have space for your kids to run around, that might be it. You get to a level of happiness that then more money doesn't necessarily increase. And I think that's what we've forgotten, that our needs are covered and really we, we have what we need and somehow somehow still our, our shen seems to wander away for <laughs> reasons that we don't always understand. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, absolutely. And I think that, it, and I think actually, again, that the whole situation with lockdown and the pandemic, and I, I think it's very easy to say we should stay in lockdown and um, we shouldn't go back out and go back to work. It's easy to say when you have, a lovely house and a lovely garden and access to technology and an iPad and, and that kind of thing. And I think if you don't have that, it's it's different, isn't it? And I, you know, it's a, it's a whole other set of challenges. And I think this has highlighted the contrast between the haves and the have-nots within, certainly within British society. And you do have to question how much do, do we actually need to be happy? And, it, and it, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of wanting more, and certainly I, you know, I'm guilty of it as much as anybody, you know, thinking oh, it's nice to have nice things and it's nice to strive towards those things. But I think understanding that those things are not going to bring you happiness, that's a really important thing to remember. Um, and I think to be able to to realise that is, is a gift as well, um, to get to the point in life where you know that actually those things aren't going to make you happy because I think some people will never realize they'll always be striving for something um you know be it materialistic um or otherwise to actually be in the moment to be happy with what you've what you've got is you know it's a good place to be but not necessarily an easy place to get to I don't think absolutely so have you got um plans for Reopening, I mean, at the moment, we have the potential date of 4th of July, I think. That's what the government says might be (laughs) the day that we can go back to work, but it's not clear. Yeah, I think the uncertainty is really difficult because I, the whole time, I think if I'd have known that I was right, this is a day you can go back to work, then I could have utilised my time and studied and done all the things that I really should be doing. But because it's like, oh God, how long do I have to relax and in, you know, potentially just get into this and enjoy having some time off after doing an intense degree and all the rest of it, um, and so not having that was really difficult. Um, but yeah, I'm. I think now my patients are starting to get in touch to ask when because they're really noticing the lack of acupuncture, um, which isn't, you know, that's a good thing. I think when people are able to notice life without acupuncture, um, I've been able to open for urgent treatment um, because the British Acupuncture Council have now uh, allowed us to do that. And we've got insurance in place. So I've seen a few people who are in severe pain um and just you know can't move essentially um and also i have included mental health patients in that because i do work a lot with mental health and some people are really really at their lowest um and that to me it means it's urgent so um i've been able to dip my toe back in the water but it i i think the ppe thing um and wearing a mask it adds it it 
it's a source of anxiety for me because I'm nervous about I mean I've actually already had COVID I should say I've I caught it early doors um so I can only assume I've got some level of immunity but obviously I'm still wearing all the PPE um so but I'm worried about making people feel safe I'm doing everything I can to keep them safe and you know wiping down absolutely everything within my clinic room um but I I am I, I I am worrying about it, and it's difficult to work to feel relaxed about treating when you're you're worrying about those things. So I do I hope at some point it's safe to not have to wear a mask and things when working because it isn't particularly nice. And you know certainly with what we do, looking after people in other ways um, and being able to see someone's face is an important part of it. Um, so I'm hopeful that by the time the 4th of July comes around and we are able to go back to open our, our you know, open our doors fully, um, hopefully that won't necessarily need to be a feature. Um, but who knows? I mean, it's such a changing landscape, isn't it? And if you, you look back a few months ago before we went into lockdown, we couldn't imagine the situation that we're in now. So um, hopefully coming out the other side of this, things will change as rapidly as they did on the other end. And yeah, I think Italy hasn't had as many cases being reported. So we seem to be a few steps behind them. So hopefully, hopefully we'll go the same way. But, you know, I don't, ultimately, I don't think COVID-19 is going anywhere. Um, I was reading the other day that we've only ever we've only ever managed to eliminate one infectious disease with a vaccine. And that was smallpox. So when you look at all the infectious diseases out there that we do vaccinate, but they're still in circulation, I think we have to be realistic about the chances of eliminating it. Um, we're just going to have to learn to live with it and look after ourselves as best we can so that we we are in a good position to fight it if we need to be. Um, yeah, so I, it's difficult to know what the landscape is going to be like for us. Um, but I, from, I, am, I do feel better because I've had because I have had patients who are so keen to get back, even though, you know, of course, there's always going to be a risk of, of, of COVID wherever you do and whatever, you know, wherever you go and whatever you do. Um, but they, they still, it, they're still risk assessing it and, and weighing up the pros and cons, which we all have to do and making a decision that they would rather be in a situation where whilst slim, they might contract COVID, but actually it's, it's, you know, having the treatment, outweighs that risk um and I think we'll have to do that with all aspects of life whether it's going to the hairdressers or going for acupuncture or you know popping to the supermarket we have to make a risk assessment based on our own health and I'm hopeful that that's what um patients and potential patients will do with acupuncture um yeah so I I don't think I'll be as busy as I was for for some time I don't think I want to be um, but I am really, really looking forward to getting back to work. Yes, we will soon. I, I, I woke up optimistic today. I don't know why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's an ever-changing thing, isn't it? I think some days I feel great and I'm like, right, it's all going to be fine. And other days I'm like, oh, just get me a gin and tonic. <laughs> yes, no, so today, I don't know if it's the sunshine or what, but I woke up optimistic. <laughs> so I think it's yeah, good. Right. <laughs> So thank you so much, Sally. It's been, it's been so much fun. I love this podcast. So for our listeners, Sally's website is www.sallyconnellyacupuncture.com. So two N's, two L's. And she 
she's also on Instagram as Sally Connolly Acupuncture. So go give her a follow. Thank you so much. It's actually .co.uk on, on my website, sallyconnollyacupuncture.co.uk, if anyone wants to look. But if any students want to get in touch and ask me anything, I'm happy to, to chat with anyone. Thank you so much. That's really generous because I know that, you know, the current students are all feeling a little bit wobbly about this. And I, I fully believe in the power of mentoring, in the power of connection, in the power of talking really that's why that's why I'm doing this yeah shared experience it's important yeah absolutely great so thank you so much absolute pleasure